who are staying here today, we're going to have two textual references and readings today. You may see behind me, you may already see in the bulletin that today we have Luke chapter 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we read those particular texts and passages that refer directly to the Lord's Supper. It is time for us today to commune with the Lord before we actually have our time of communion in the Lord's Supper. We will educate ourselves and become better familiar with the Lord's Supper. We may already know it, but today it may be that fresh reminder that we meet. Because today, as you see in front of me, the table is set. The bread is here. The elements are in place. The bread is the body, representing the body broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And we have here, of course, also the cup. By the way, filled with juice, which represents the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So the table is set. The elements are here. It is time for us to educate ourselves, become familiar or more familiar with the Lord's Supper, and then also lead ourselves into a time of communing with our Lord. The text from Luke that we're about to read will tell us about the institution, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 will tell us the words of Paul, the insight he received about how we can partake into the Lord's Supper without bringing condemnation or judgment upon ourselves. A very important text to consider before we ever partake into the Lord's Supper. So our first reading will be from Luke chapter 22. Stand with me if you're able to, as we do so to honor the reading of the word. In Luke's gospel, we're going to start in the seventh verse of the 22nd chapter. And Luke then writes these words, again, Luke chapter 22, verse 7. He writes, Then came the day, of unleavened bread, in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Well, they said to him, Where will you have us to prepare it? But then Jesus said to them, Peter and John, He said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Until the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And he went and found it just as he had told them, and he prepared the Passover. Verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, verse 17, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, Lord, we come before you today, Lord, at a somber and serious moment to commune, to dine with you, Lord, to reflect upon the sacrifice that's truly been made for each and every person, not only in this church, not only in this room, Versus the entirety of the world. So, sir, today we invite your spirit. We invite you, Lord, to lead into 
allow us to receive insight pertaining to the Lord's Supper and allow us then, Lord, to partake into it today and erase and cleanse, purge our sin so we do not bring judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. So, Lord, right now we pray in advance of when we partake and we ask for the forgiveness of our sin. But we just ask again that you'll lead, you'll guide, you'll direct us into the message time and allow us then to be cleansed here today and to commune with you. Thank you, Lord, for the insight we shall gain here today and for the chance we have to have this moment to commune. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the text from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, which we had just read, he takes a moment to record the events pertaining to the Lord's Supper. As you can probably discern for yourselves from the particular reading where we start in verse 7, it is time for the annual observance of the Passover. At Passover in that day and time, people would travel from wherever they were, wherever they lived. They would, they would leave their home, their people, their belongings, and they would go to Jerusalem. Notice in verse 7, as we go back to the text, that Luke specifically states, it is the day of the unleavened bread, which is the direct reference back to Exodus chapter 12, when God instructed Moses to tell the Israelites to place blood on the doorpost and so that they could be spared of the judgment to be placed upon the land of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 7, we find that to be the case. Moses wrote, They shall take some of the blood, put into doorposts, and in lentil of the houses in which they eat. They're instructed to put the, the blood on the doorpost. In verse 12 of Exodus 12, the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, all the firstborn. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So as the Lord then passed over the houses of the Israelites, thereby sparing them from the plague, striking the Egyptian newborn, again, man and beast both, we are instructed further to make sure this becomes an annual observance. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, we read further. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Luke makes sure to record it is the time of the Passover, the day of the unleavened bread. This then is the occasion, the time, the setting of the institution, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. Again, it is Passover, the annual observation of unleavened bread, as Jesus then takes a moment to gather all of his disciples. And as Luke has written, it specifically goes to the upper room. But notice in verse 8, he didn't just send anyone. I think it's not very ironic and very interesting that he sends the two people, perhaps arguably, who are closest to him. He sends Peter and John to secure the upper room and to prepare the Passover meal. So as all of them then go, the two of them, go into the city to prepare the meal, to find the room, we find finally, verse 14, it has been done. The meal 
The Passover has been prepared. So now, verse 14, all the disciples are now there gathered together, reclining at the table. Now try to picture that, if you will, because most visual references that we can see, movies that try to portray this, do it as a time of fellowship. They do it as a time in which there may be some camaraderie among the twelve and of Jesus. And they, they kind of portray there's much conversation happening at that time and moment. And we don't have the information to tell us exactly what the conversation may have been. I mean, perhaps they were talking about the history of the Passover. I mean, that is one thing that could happen. But it might likely be that they are now discussing amongst themselves the death wish placed upon Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's not conjecture. Luke tells us that they are seeking his death. In the beginning of this chapter in Luke 22, particularly verse 2, Luke writes that the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. So this should be the case where they are gathered down in the upper room, reclining at the table, discussing the death wish of the Pharisees upon the Lord, to note that Jesus breaks the tension-filled moment. When he tells them in verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Now, if you notice verse 17, if you examine those words carefully, you will observe that Jesus does not ease any of their concerns that they may have had about the death wishes upon the Lord from the Pharisees and the chief priests. In verse 15, notice that he admits that he will suffer. And of course, we know that he will indeed suffer and suffer greatly. He will be beaten. He will be flogged. He will be ridiculed and mocked. He will be crucified. He will be hung upon the cross. The most horrific and humiliating death ever. That type of death being placed upon the cross in which he had to endure was normally designated for the worst Roman offenders. And whatever offense could be hor horrendous, it was placed upon those who had done so and upon the cross. So Jesus tells his disciples he's going to suffer. They may not know yet the extent. But he doesn't ease their conscience. He doesn't ease their minds. He tells them that he will suffer. We know the amount that he will suffer. So then after he informs his disciples that he would suffer, he immediately, without hesitation, even in his voice, institutes the supper. Verse 19 of Luke 22. He took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, to all the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus takes a moment to give thanks first for the bread and then tells the disciples, this represents my body. This is the body of the Lord, broken 
for the forgiveness of our sins. For all sins of mankind. It then lifts up the cup. Of course, the cup representing the blood. The blood of the perfect lamb slain for you and for me. Appropriately enough at the Passover, thereby ending all future sacrifices. In essence, as he says, the new covenant. This passage written in Luke is very similarly written in both also Matthew and Mark. But it establishes the Lord's Supper. This very moment in the upper room is the beginning of a sacrament, the beginning of an ordinance that is observed in nearly every church of various denominations across not only the country but the world. Some refer to it as communion. Others, particularly Baptists like us, refer to it more commonly as the Lord's Supper. Some observe the Lord's Supper weekly. Some do it monthly. Some do it quarterly. Myself, I've never placed a particular time frame or interval upon the Lord's Supper. Most of it calls Scripture does not define a certain time for it to be done. However, for churches that hold services on Monday, Thursday, the Lord's Supper is always performed. Monday, Thursday is the Thursday of Passion Week. It is the Thursday before Easter, commonly known as the time with Jesus is now reclining with the disciples in the upper room with the bread and the cup, as we have read in Luke 22. This reading in Luke 22 marks the beginning of the Lord's Supper, commonly known as the Last Supper, but it institutes the Lord's Supper for all of us at a time in which we can do and commune with the Lord. That is beginning. But unfortunately, over time, Christian searches began to lose some of the great special significance pertaining to the Lord's Supper. Something that only has been disturbing to me for quite some time, but to the Apostle Paul. So therefore, Paul, who was not one of the twelve in the upper room at that moment for the Last Supper, he received some insight. So he writes a letter to the Corinthian church to set some parameters, to set some guidelines, if you will. So let us review his words as he writes in his first Corinthian letter. We're going to leap now to first Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to stand for this. We're going to divide it into segments. But note as we begin reading, a very important section that Paul begins to not he does not commend the church. He actually chastises the church as he begins to give them some instructions about how to properly partake into the Lord's Supper. So we leap now to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to pick up the reading in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul says this as he writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part, for there must be factions, there's dissension among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
stop for a moment, recognize that what Paul was referring to is that in that day and time, the early Christian churches would take an opportunity to have a meal of fellowship prior to having the Lord's Supper. So Paul was talking about the fact that they are having that meal. In verse 21, he says, if we're in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal. I like to leap ahead, they jump ahead. But he says this also in verse 21. He said, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And we stop there for a moment before we go any further because a little explanation is helpful. Note in verse 17, like I had mentioned previously, Paul has absolutely no commendation for the Corinthians when it came to their particular practice of the Lord's Supper. In fact, an experience of the Lord's Supper normally meant to build up the church was actually having the opposite effect. He states to them in a letter, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. As in, in your meeting time, when you're doing church, it's doing more harm than good. That's what he tells them. What is it, the problem? He also tells them that he's heard there is divisions in the church. People, for whatever reason, who just cannot get along. Maybe certain cliques forming within the church. Dissension seems to be evident. There's, that's the problem, divisions within the church. To make sure we understand, I use the words of David Pryor, who says the divisions in the church at Corinth had reached systematic proportions. There were now not merely personality cults around certain figureheads nor were there differences of emphasis over food offered to idols. There were hints of a rather obnoxious kind of snobbishness between the rich and the not-so-rich. There is great dissension. There is great division. He said the church was badly splintered, and these divisions made their times of worship and fellowship so negative that Christians went away in a worse state spiritually than when they arrived. My question is this, as we hear that, as we he hear about the divisions that existed in that church that Paul was writing to, to help them understand how to partake the Lord's Supper correctly, which are some things we ain't even got to yet. He first says, hey, there's division, a lot of division and dissension in this place. This house of worship is not that at all. So as you reflect upon that, as you think about that, here's my question. Have you ever been to a church that had such great division within? That's not a place you want to be. And I'm thankful it is not Crossroads Baptist Church. But when I think about the question, I have to admit to you that I've been there. Unfortunately, as a pastor, the very first church in which I ever became a senior pastor, the church itself had experienced a split. A great divide, dissension was evident within. Now, the split occurred before I became their pastor. But as I became their pastor, not fully realizing the church split that had occurred previously, I recognized something wasn't quite right from the beginning. 
because there was ill feelings everywhere. And as a result, those ill feelings they still carried from years prior to the time I arrived. It was hard to get anything done. Again, the division was obvious. There were cliques. There was dissension. Bickering was very common. Bickering and arguing occurred over things like the music or the youth group. Each other. And probably, even though I didn't know it at the time, over me. In fact, I found out later I was barely voted into the church. There was a lot of division in this place. It was clearly a divided church. So much so, they could not even agree on what needed to fill the entry of the youth center. We had this youth center we had that had great amount of uh, classrooms and this large gymnasium. And in the entry there, there was an opportunity to put something up on the wall. Well, one group decided it was the youth center. It needed to have this big bulletin board full of pictures of the youth everywhere so people see this is the youth center. This is what we do. It's fun. Or another group said, no, we don't need pictures of our youth. We need a mirror. We need paintings. It's beautiful when you come in. And there became a lot of division over what should be placed in the entry of the youth center. So I began to think about this, realizing and praying about what I should do, and it occurred to me, we're not going to put pictures up. We're not going to put up a painting in the mirror. What we put up in the hallway when you come in? A cross. I thought, bicker about that, why don't you? We'll put a cross there. So what's happening now in Corinth is maybe not that precise situation, but something similar. The divisions exist. There's dissension, there's cliques, there's arguing, there's bickering. So Paul realizes that, and he calls them on the carpet about it. And he says, hey, I can imagine Paul saying this. Hey, y'all, this ain't going to happen here. And it's certainly, look, what is happening is certainly not bringing anyone closer to Christ. Which is something exactly the Lord's Supper should do. Listen, when you partake into the Lord's Supper, like we are today, or any time for that matter, when we partake into the Lord's Supper, it should draw you closer to Christ. It should help you realize that special moment, the somber that it is, the seriousness of it all should make you realize the sacrifice that was made for you. That Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who had no sin, took upon himself our sin so that we could stand before a holy God forgiven. When we observe the Lord's Supper, it should be that special time of remembrance. It should be always extraordinary, always very meaningful. Never should it become mundane, never commonplace, never just ordinary. Or as it happened to be here at Corinth, it should not be the occasion in which people are having an overindulgence of food and of wine to the point where they get drunk. can imagine that being the scene. But additionally, reflect about the Lord's Supper, it should always loudly speak the gospel message that Christ came 
He died. He was buried. And he is coming again. And as we reflect upon the Lord's Supper and that gospel message, it should force someone to reflect upon their decision or the lack thereof to accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. I can remember my very first Lord's Supper. Again, I've told you before, I wasn't saved until 2001 at the age of 38, which is circumstances that have preceded that particular moment with my father. As he had cancer, dying from cancer in the hospital, all that I have relayed to you before. But upon that decision I made in May 2001, the church that I was attending in Clinton, Mississippi, decided they would soon after that have the Lord's Supper. It wasn't a particular time interval. Just the pastor decided that would be the occasion soon after in which they would have the Lord's Supper. But for me, it was very significant because it's my first ever. So as we begin to hear Dr. Rob Boyd that particular day explain the Lord's Supper, maybe like I'm doing somewhat today, he began to emphasize that if you have been born again, we're about to commune with the Lord. And if you've been born again, a Christian, a believer, you should partake until the Lord's Supper. He began to say further that only those who profess with their mouth, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, only those who profess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that in their heart that God raised him from the dead, only those should partake until the Lord's Supper. He said it is for believers. It's for those who professed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at that particular time, I knew I'd been saved. I'd accepted Christ as my Savior. I accepted Jesus into my life. Same situation applied to both Sheila and Caleb. We'd been baptized. We'd accepted Christ. We were born again. We were Christians. We were believers. So when Rob takes us into the Lord's Supper, similar in way to maybe we are today, I knew that I could go and partake in the Lord's Supper. The elements have been prepared. There's the bread. There's the cup. So as he leads us in all this, I was ready, anxious, my first time ever to go into the Lord's Supper because we were believers. We were Christians. We were born again. So as he leads, we prepare to get up and go on down to the front of the church to receive the bread, the cup. As myself, Sheila, and Kayla get up to go, also sitting with us, my son Tyler and Chase. Chase was too young at the moment, but Tyler got up to go as well. And Sheila and I looked and turned to each other, and we had to tell Tyler he could not go because he had not made a decision except Christ. He had not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, honestly, at that particular time, it was hard for us to tell Tyler that. And it kind of hurt his feelings. But the point is, we have a moment, when we partake into our supper, we have a moment to let that be a witness opportunity. It is a time where we could commune. Those who have been born again believers, we can commune with our Lord and reflect upon the sacrifice made for all of us. And for those who have not yet made the decision, it's a moment in which they can come to the Lord. And it hurt Tyler's feelings. But the good news is, a few weeks later, he accepted Christ.
The point is, the Lord's Supper is always a very powerful moment. It allows those who've accepted Christ to commune. It allows others to simultaneously at the exact same time to open the door for the gospel message to be given so they can too partake of the Lord's Supper. That's how it works. In a God-loving, Bible-teaching, united church, that's how it works. But that wasn't happening to Corinth. Paul finds they've had cultic activity. They've got divisions. They've got dissension. They've got cliques. There is no unity. Paul told the Corinthians in this letter, when you come together, when you meet, when you worship, it is not worship. People actually leave worse than when they came. It is not for the better. It is for worse. That's what he told the church. Again, I'm so glad that is not this church. We have nothing like that here. We come united together as one big family. But the church at Corinth was divided. So Paul then, as he recognized this, writing this letter to give them instructions, now seizes the opportunity to write further, to tell them the proper conduct for the Lord's Supper. Which is this. We continue now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 22 or 23. He says, For I, being Paul, was not there present at the Last Supper. He was not in the upper room. He says, For I then received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as you hear that or read that behind me or in the Bible that you may have opened, Paul has simply, he ain't said anything new so far. Here, he simply echoes the words that we've already read in Luke chapter 22. There's nothing new, just reemphasizing the evening in which the Lord's Supper was instituted. But then he continues, which becomes very important. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So Paul kind of ends this section, but notice this. Go back to the beginning of this particular reading segment, because Paul explains that condemnation can occur when someone partakes into the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 
an unworthy manner. Maybe you're curious then about what could be defined as an unworthy manner. So I borrow the words of John McCarthy, who says an unworthy manner is taking the Lord's Supper ritualistically, indifferently, with an unrepentant heart, a spirit of bitterness, or any other godly attitude. Notice again, MacArthur's pointed to the fact that an unworthy manner is an unrepentant heart. It's bitterness. It's ungodliness. Remember that we stated the Lord's Supper should always be a special moment. There's a time we come together, we get to reflect upon the sacrifice, and all that Christ endured. He endured plenty of suffering for all of us. So MacArthur's trying to lay it out there so we know what is an unworthy manner, an unrepentant heart, bitterness, and ungodliness that exists in our lives. But he also refers to what he calls ritualistically or indifferently. One of the things that I've noticed over the years leading several different churches is that sometimes a church has in its doctrine a certain time interval for the partaking of the Lord's Supper and for the observance of time to commune. Sometimes I mention this weekly, sometimes it's the first Sunday of every month, sometimes it's quarterly. Again, that's not defined in the scripture, but here's the danger. When, when MacArthur refers to ritualistically, the danger is that when it becomes just a ritual, a time on the calendar, or a time in the service where it to be done, it can become way too common. It can become meaningless. It can become indifferent. It don't have to be, but that's the danger that can occur when it's at a particular interval. Because it should always be a very special moment. The Lord's Supper that we observe commemorates the Last Supper. Again, the body broken for our sin and the blood that was shed for all of us so that we could stand righteously before God. I mean, to not honor that results in being guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's an unworthy manner. MacArthur also adds this, though. He says, to come to the Lord's table clinging to one's sin not only dishonors the ceremony, but it dishonors his blood and blood, treating lightly the gracious sacrifice of Christ for believers. So he's talking about, Paul is referencing how we can maybe come with an unworthy manner, and now MacArthur is defining that for us. So if we have all a concern, we should have a concern about making sure we don't come for to take into the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So now we should ask ourselves, well, what then can we do? What should you and I do to properly honor the ceremony and the sacrifice? And the answer Paul gives in verse 28, to make sure we do not do anything in an unworthy manner pertaining to the Lord's Supper, he says you must examine yourself. Verse 28, examine yourself. But what should we examine? When Nofel Stanton in his, his commentary on 1 Corinthians asked that very question. He said, what is the person to examine about himself? He answers, he is examined to see whether or not he has any alienations, any unforgiveness, 
the factions, the dissensions, the cliques, and any division between him and other members of the body. He must recognize the body of the Lord is the church, and it is indeed one body and one church. In essence, what Staten is telling us that we need to do is examine ourselves and examine everything about yourself and the life that you're living. Let me say it again. Before we partake in the Lord's Supper, we should examine everything about ourselves and the life in which we're living. What is our lifestyle? Is it recognizing God and having a life honoring Him? Do we have our lives to strive to imitate Christ? Are we living according to God's standards or the world's standards? Furthermore, consider yourself and examine this. Are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you hateful? Are you full of rage and envy and jealousy? Are you holding grudges? Are you currently or have any time in the past not forgiven someone for something they have done? I mean, we're forgiven. So why can't we forgive? We must examine ourselves on every level, in every aspect of our life. Before we come to the table, examine every aspect of our life. Dr. Mark Taylor, who was the seminary, he was my Greek professor. He observed the verb to examine in the Greek is related to the noun designated ones who have God's approval. So we examine ourselves, begin to think about, are we meeting God's standards? Do we have his approval? I mean, would God approve of the way in which we're living our life? Because if not, then get it right and get it right right now. Confess your sin. You know, our sins are known to God. We can be like Adam and Eve and think we can hide our sin, but God always knows. We can be like David, David who had a relationship with Bathsheba, thought he had gotten away with it. Nathan was sent to confront him. God knew precisely David's sin he had with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up. God is waiting for the confession of our sin. He's waiting for us to admit our evil, lust, sinful episodes we have in life. And he's ready to cleanse us, to purge us. Like he did with David in Psalm 51. David writes, Oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. And he will, God will cleanse us. Or as the psalmist had written in 103, verse 12, he will forgive us our sins as far as the east is from the west. Paul is taking a moment at a church that has having some serious trouble. We're not like the church of Corinth in no way. But Paul makes sure he identifies to all people, to all churches, to everywhere the proper way to partake in the Lord's Supper. He says you must examine every part of your life before partaking in the Lord's Supper. He is saying also that it's rather clear. 
I mean, Paul is making it rather clear that without cleansing, without confessing, you're bringing judgment. You're bringing condemnation upon yourself. He says in verses 29 through 27 through 29, read it once more before we walk up one more time. He says, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we define what that is, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We have reviewed some texts. We didn't get through all the details, but we have reviewed enough. We looked at the beginning, the institution of the Lord's Supper. We have now considered what Paul writes about the partaking of the Lord's Supper to give us a guideline. So today, today, we have a more lengthy message. Typically, we come, we have a message, and we partake into the supper. But today, it all pertains to the Lord's Supper. And it emphasizes that we should not bring judgment or condemnation upon ourselves. We should not want to bring condemnation or judgment upon ourselves. So now, it is time for us to commune. So I urge you, seek God right now with all your hearts before you prepare to get up and to come and to take the bread and to take the cup. Get right with God. Confess your sin. Cleanse yourself. Become as pure as you possibly can. Lest you be guilty and bring condemnation and judgment upon yourself. It's a somber time. It's a reflection of the sacrifice that was made for each of us. Let us not come in an unworthy manner. The elements are set. The bread is here. We talked about the bread in individual cups today, not together so we would not have the risk of COVID concerns. Individual cup for you to take with your bread. Also, we have the cup, the juice representing the body, the blood that was shed for all of us for the forgiveness of our sins. As you prepare to come, make sure you're right with God and cleanse yourself before you take the body broken for forgiveness of our sins and the cup, the blood, Shed for forgiveness of our sins. I'm going to pray over the elements. Have you stand with me as I pray over the elements, please? I'm going to pray over the elements and bless this. And then you, when you feel ready, will come and commune. Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for thinking of us. When you're on the cross, Lord, your body was broken. Your blood was shed. You were thinking of us, Lord. So today we gather before you reflecting upon that sacrifice. And we're thankful. Today we come together in a moment which we learn about the Lord's Supper. And today we come together to cleanse ourselves before you. I, Lord, come before you and ask you forgive me for my sins. 
Lord, I pray for the sin of all of us, for forgiveness for all of our sin, Lord, of how we offend you, how we rebel, how we're evil, how we're dirty, filthy rags. Lord, I pray for all of us together as a church. Cleanse us here today, Lord. Thank you again for the opportunity we have to come. We pray for a blessing to be upon the bread and the cup, the blood. Bless these elements, Lord, as we partake into them today. As we reflect upon that sacrifice made for each of us. We're forever thankful, Lord, for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.